You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, today I'm going to tell you about a church that made Jesus sick. How does that sound like a, 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 an exciting passage coming our way, exciting sermon? It's the church that when Jesus looked at them, he said, when I look at you, I just want to puke. So he said, and you might be thinking, come on now, Russell, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you in a couple minutes here that that's, that's exactly what Jesus had to say to them. And they, they, they were, they were, I'm sure they were shocked when they heard this message uh, because they were a church that was fairly comfortable. They were wealthy. They had probably had good numbers in terms of their attendance. They certainly considered themselves to be very successful. But when Jesus talked about them, he had nothing good to say about them. Well, think about that for a second. I mean, like, what, what kind of a church is it? What's going on in a church when Jesus has nothing good to say about them? I wonder, could that, could that happen to us? Could we ever be a church that Jesus had nothing good to say about us? <laughs> and not only did Jesus have nothing good to say about them, what he did say about them was that, well, he said, you people make me sick. What is going on in a church when Jesus says stuff like that to them? And what's going on in a church? What's going on in a Christian where Jesus might say something like that? Could he say something about, like that about our church, about us? Is he maybe saying something like that to us today? Well, let's go and find out. I, I know it doesn't sound very exciting. I mean, it was great. Last week we were in Philadelphia, not... Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia in, in the ancient, in the, in the New Testament, in Revelation 3, and it was a great church. I mean, Jesus had great things to say about them. Well, today, uh, it's a pity the tour ends here, but it's, it's where the Lord leads us, so let's go there. Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22, and this is the final sermon in our series called Seven Letters that every church needs to read. Uh, seven letters every church needs to read, and we just call it that because Revelation 2 and 3 consists of seven letters to seven different historic churches that came messages from Jesus to the Apostle John for these historic churches. And in each of them, he gives a report of what he sees is going on there, tells them about their condition. Like he's, he's visited them, and he's like, here's my report to you on what I have seen, what I've observed is happening in your church. And uh, it's been quite the tour, these, these seven churches. We started off in Ephesus. You remember Ephesus was the church with diminished love. And then we went to Smyrna, and Smyrna was the suffering church. And we, we saw there, we, we learned from the Lord something of how to help suffering saints, right? Give them an exalted view of Jesus and remind them that the Lord knows. And then we went to Pergamum. When I had my map out last week, I forgot Pergamum in first service. I'm trying to forget it again. Pergamum. Well, Pergamum was, uh, they were the over-tolerant church. It was, their, their doctrine was a bit, well, they're a bit lax in their doctrine. And they were told to root out the false teachers. Then we went from Pergamum to Thyatira. Remember, Thyatira was the compromising church. They, if, if in Pergamum the issue was doctrinal laxity, in Thyatira the problem was moral liberty. And they needed to take sin seriously. And then we went to Sardis. Remember Sardis? <laughs> like Sardis was the dead, dying church. Jesus said, you got a reputation for being alive, like great things have happened in the past. But as far as today is concerned, 
you're dead. They were dying, and there was a call there for us to watch out for signs of deadness. And then, of course, we went to Philadelphia, the church where Jesus, he commended them and encouraged them to keep going. And again, it's too bad the tour doesn't stop in Philadelphia, because we could have ended it on a high note. But here we come to Laodicea, and of the seven churches, Laodicea is the only one of the seven where Jesus had nothing good to say about them. So it brings us back to the beginning of asking, I wonder what could be going on in a place like that? And boy, it really wants me, makes me sit up and listen and pay attention to say, we ought to watch out that I'm not that kind of Christian, that we're not that kind of church. Now, the church of Laodicea was in a very wealthy city. Uh, it was a wealthy church in a wealthy city. They had three things going for them big time. Medicine, uh, sorry, money, medicine, and clothing. Money, medicine, and clothing. Uh, in terms of wealth, uh, it was a place, it was an important trade route. It was a center for banking in the ancient world, for medicine. They produced in Laodicea, they produced a special kind of salve that was exported for people that people would take and use if they had different eye ailments. They would use the salve to grant re- relief, kind of like you go to the drugstore and get your pink eye medication, that kind of thing, but a salve that they developed there. And also clothing. It was a center for, for textile. For, it was the heart of the fashion world in those days. And there was a special kind of wool that they, could only, they only made in Laodicea that was exported. So you can imagine, just, just put your historian's hat on here, and you can imagine that this, boy, this is a really wealthy city, and the church was a wealthy church. Only one problem, though, that the city had, and it's got real relevance to our passage today, and it's this. The city of Laodicea, while they were very wealthy, they had no potable water in the city itself. It all had to be piped in from far away. And so there was an aqueduct system was built, and there was piping off that aqueduct system for the people to be able to have water. Now, that's got real relevance to our text. And um, you, know what, you know what I want to do right now? This is a little different. But I want to bring up somebody who is recently in Laodicea. Okay? I got Ryan, will you come on up here and help me out here? Ryan Slingerland and his family, they were in Laodicea recently. I'm going to give you that there. There it's on now. And... Um, uh, Ryan, I mean, you were there. You were there in the in the place, in the place where this where we're reading about today. And you got some pictures here. You're gonna pictures, you're gonna yeah. talk us through here. So there's just proof that you were there. Yes, this right? is proof. Where are you? What are we seeing here? Uh, this is Laodicea. This is this is the main the main town where the letters were written to. And it's it's crazy that they're actual real historical places with like actual people. Amazing. Um, and yeah, very rich marble everywhere. Columns fallen, but. Yeah. At the time, they weren't, obviously. So. Sure, yeah. Well, let's look in the next picture here. You can tell us, tell us more about it. Now, there's your brother, yeah. your brother Jack. And where, where is he standing here? This is the main street. This was where everybody would take their daily commute and um, probably markets on the side. Uh, giant columns lined, hundreds of them. So these columns here? Yeah. So now, what are they made of? Marble. Marble. Yeah. Marble columns, yeah. right? Like, like, like hundreds of them? Hundreds of them. And wow. I mean, now, but even more back then, they were yeah. not cheap. So. Yeah, that's right. Not cheap. That's right. Amazing. Look at that. Just, just try to imagine. You know, back 2,000 years and what that must have looked like. Just amazing. All right, then go forward to the next one. What's this here we're looking at? Um, this is kind of the amphitheater. I mean, they would have events here, possibly gladiators fighting even. And wow. um, it would hold probably, I don't know, I would guess up to five, 6,000 people. And there was two of them in the town, right beside wow. each other. Wow, amazing. There's your sister, right? Yeah. So, a little, so just a little, you know, to give you some perspective, right? Like, that's a, that is a big, big theater. Amazing, amazing. Let's go to the next picture here. Okay, now this is, this is in the church itself, yes, right? This is in the church. Yeah. So this is, there's where they met. So think, we got a letter to the church at Laodicea. 
Here's, here's the place. Here's the meeting place. Look at that. Look at that floor. What is this flooring? Uh, it's like a mosaic marble as well, like a, t- a tile. Yeah. Wow, and beautiful. It's spread throughout the entire church. Wow. Eric Edwards, I got some ideas for flooring in the building. He's out in the lot. I got some. We can talk about that later. Amazing. Look at the intricate design. It's just breathless. Let's look at the next picture. This is, this is the courtyard of the church? Yes, this is the courtyard. All right, your brother like Keem. Sorry, what's that? Like our parking lot. Like our parking lot? That's right. Look at the the columns around here, right? How is the church doing financially? Pretty good. Yeah, they're doing all right. Yep, they got a great, what a a building project there. Amazing. And then let's... ...into the baptismal tank, probably. This is in uh, uh, Pamukkale, which you can see from Laodicea. So Pamukkale, see it from Laodicea. Hierapolis, Hierapolis, and so just keep just keep that relevant in a few minutes. This water here is it? It looks like it's like like you're ready for a polar plunge, yeah, but it's, it's not. It's, I, it's blue, but it's it's not. It's it's very hot. Hot water. Hot so water, yeah. so like hot tub hot? Uh, yeah, about yeah. About that, especially in the sun, for sure. Yeah. Wow, especially in the sun. Isn't that crazy? Crazy. And you can see this. Isn't that crazy? Crazy. And you can see this. From Laodicea. You yeah. can see this area. Yeah, it's just a giant, big, looks like a giant iceberg on land. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I think, is that the end of the pictures or one more? I think that was it. I think that's it. Hey, listen, thanks. Anything else you want to say about this? Not, okay. not much. No, <laughs> awesome. Not. It's just amazing to be there. Amazing, yeah, amazing. Let's give him a hand here. Thank him for helping us out here. Appreciate that. Thanks. Well, there we go. Like, I mean, we'd all love to be there, right? But you kind of got to take a tour and uh, see a bit of it yourself. Now, that is where this was written to. Revelation 3 and verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. (laughs) Welcome to Sunday morning in Laodicea. Imagine. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I repression in the church that he's addressing. And in this case, Jesus refers to himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. So what does all that mean? Well, let's start with the word amen. Verse 14, the words of the amen. Where do you commonly hear the word amen? In what context do you usually hear it? When you pray, right? At the end of your prayers. And what we mean when we're saying amen is we're saying, let it be so. Or so be it. It's an expression of committing what we have just prayed to God. We're committing it to him. Let it be so, Lord. 
Let it be so. And that's often where we hear the, the word amen. Now, sometimes we could think, well, maybe it's Jesus saying in one sense, he's saying that he's the last word, he's the final word. Well, maybe, that, that's, that could be true. It's more likely, though, that this word amen here has, has another specific meaning in this text, and that is that it is, uh, he is the one who is true. He's the one who's sure. He's the emphatic yes. I say that because this word here, amen, is sometimes rendered in ways where we would see, like, for example, Jesus sometimes will say to his disciples, truly, truly, I say unto you. You ever read a verse like that in the Gospels? Or verily, verily, I say unto, the, unto you. What, that's the same word here, amen, truly, truly, verily, verily. What I'm saying, you can count on it as true. And in fact, I, I think that's most certainly the meaning, because the next phrase, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. He's the one who tells the truth, always. And I think the application here in Laodicea probably goes something like this. It's almost like the Lord is saying, what I'm about to tell you about yourselves, you're going to find hard to believe. Some of you are going to hear what I'm about to say and think, he cannot be talking about us. He must be mistaken. Surely he isn't talking about us. But what Jesus is showing them here is, hey, look at the portrait again and remember who it is who's talking. I'm the amen. I'm the true one who speaks the truth. I'm faithful and true. What I say you can count on as reality. My report is 100% truthful, 100% accurate. He goes on to refer to himself as the beginning of God's creation. That phrase there, the word there, beginning, should not be taken here in the passive sense as though he was created. Jesus was never created. That would be blasphemous to say that. He's always been. No, instead the word beginning here is it really in the sense of he is the initiator. He's the one who began it. He's the beginning of creation in terms of the fact that anything that is exists because of him. He made it. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created by him, by Jesus, and for him. So what's the point here? Well, we're going to see in a moment that there's a church that feels that they're doing just fine, thank you very much. They don't really need anything. They're quite satisfied with where they are. And there's a little bit of an independent streak. In fact, quite a bit of an independent streak that's emerged in the church, as we'll see in a moment. But we'll remember the portrait of Jesus, the one who what he says is true, and also the one from whom comes everything. Everything we have, everything we achieve, everything we possess ultimately comes from him. We owe it all to him. And without him, we can do nothing. This brings us to the problem. We've got the portrait of Jesus, and now the problem. He says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were. In other words, I wish you were, one or the other, either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now remember, Laodicea is a very prosperous city, very wealthy, and it seems that the church is also financially prosperous. But remember, they got a problem in Laodicea. Remember the problem in the city? They lacked any drinking water. How would they get it? It had to be piped in through an aqueduct. Now, if we went up to Hierapolis, where Ryan was showing us the picture there in the hot springs, 
if we were in Hierapolis, the water source there, well, it's not cold water, but it's hot water. And who doesn't love the soak in a nice hot tub? The hot tub. Maybe I'll even get in the hot tub today. Just sort of, just sort of let's let the muscles relax. And there's just real therapy in that. And maybe you got some jets going on, or if not, just splash your feet and create your own your own bubbles and everything. And just getting there. It's just it's you know we got aching sore muscles. There's nothing like just just soaking into a nice hot bath. If he's like if you were hot, you'd be therapeutic. If you were hot, you'd be healing people who are spiritually wounded. You'd be, you'd be, you'd be bringing, bringing mercy to the poor and relief to the unfed, unclothed, unevangelized people in your reach. You'd be bringing the hope of Jesus. If you were hot, you would bring mercy from God to a world in need of it. If you were cold, well, I don't want to soak in a cold bath, although athletes sometimes do, but I'm not an athlete. But I like to drink cold water. In fact, when it's a real hot day, there ain't anything like ice cold water. Like, you know when you're really thirsty, really parched. Don't give me pop. Don't give me milk. Don't give me anything hot. Give me ice cold water. Well, Colossae, they had that. Down in Colossae, they had not too far away, about 17 kilometers east, Colossae, had, they had spring water there. So Hierapolis, which you can see from Laodicea, they got the hot springs there. Therapy. Colossae, 17 kilometers to the east, they got spring water, refreshing. What have they got in Laodicea? Lukewarm water. You say, how was it lukewarm? Because by the time it traveled several kilometers through the aqueduct and arrived in the city, the water in that hot sun, the water coming out of the pipes in that church building was not cold, it was not hot, it was lukewarm can you imagine showing up at church thirsty and going into the church washroom and filling up a glass of water and taking a drink and it's lukewarm? What do you do with lukewarm water in your mouth? Blah, blah. My boys, I haven't seen them do this in a, in a while, but uh, when they were younger, they used to, you guys remember doing this? You used to play pranks on each other with the water and, uh, you know, somebody's glass would be empty maybe at dinner time. Like, oh, I'll get you a drink, drink of water. Oh, thank you. They go to the tap, fill it up with warm water bring it back and set it down, and then you drink it. And what do you do when you drink that? Or, or how about warm pop? Anybody had taken a swig of warm pop? Just, oh, just, just wretched. Just, just, it makes you feel sick to your stomach, right? And Jesus says to the Laodiceans, that's about how I feel about you. You're lukewarm. I wish you were hot. I wish you were cold. Bring mercy, bring refreshment, but you bring neither. Make a note of this, loved ones. A lukewarm church makes Jesus sick. A lukewarm church, you could even, if you're writing this down, you could even put a slash beside church and put Christian. A lukewarm Christian makes Jesus sick. He says, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. That phrase there, spit you out of my mouth, literally means vomit. How graphic is that? One of, I just... It makes me sick to my stomach when I see what's going on here in Laodicea. And what is going on there? Well, they were lukewarm. Now, at this point in the message, it's, it's a fair question to ask, what exactly are we talking about in terms of lukewarmness? I described a little bit about what it might look like if Jesus found them to be hot or cold in a positive sense. But what is lukewarmness, spiritually speaking? I'd suggest that lukewarmness involves at least two things. First of all, lukewarmness is marked by complacency. By complacency. You know what, you know what I mean by complacency? Where you're just like, it's good enough. We're, 
we're, we're, do, we're just fine where we are. Just, just leave it be. We're, we're, we're content to just sort of just, just ease back and recline a little bit and just, just take it easy. We're complacent or we're lethargic. A complacent attitude says, listen, I've made all the improvements I need to make. I've done what I need to do. I've accomplished enough. I'm good. I'm just fine. Now, don't confuse complacency with contentment. Contentment's important in your Christian life. When we have contentment, that's freedom from craving to have certain things that, well, that only Jesus can really satisfy. Contentment is, well, it's the, the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus and trusting in him and walking in faith in him and his provision for your life. It's a great contentment. We heard that in the verse this morning from Autumn about the peace of God that passes all understanding. That's not complacency. That's resting in the Lord and trusting in him. When we're content, we're happy in Jesus. doesn't mean that everything is happy. certainly doesn't mean that everything is cheery. After all, you look at Jesus' life, and there was lots of unhappiness. In fact, he was called the man of sorrows. But there was in Christ, and there is in a non-lukewarm Christian, a kind of contentment and a peace that comes from him. But complacency is a whole other thing. Complacency says, yeah, I've done my bit. I've done my part. Now it's maybe time for somebody else to do it. I've got to take it easy over here. Think about the scourge that complacency can be in, in a person's life. I mean, think about complacency. If anybody here maybe has to coach a complacent athlete, what's that like, you think, to coach a complacent athlete? Pretty frustrating, right? Or, or how about uh, uh, if you're a supervisor to a complacent employee? That, that, that man or woman that just shows up at work and goes through the day with the attitude, it's good enough, good enough. It's frustrating, isn't it? How would you like to get on an airplane where there's a complacent pilot? Right? You know what I learned way back in pilot school? It's good enough, it's fine. I don't need to keep up. I don't need to practice. I don't need to train. I'm all good. I don't want on that plane. I want off that plane. I'm not staying for the safety instructions. I'm getting off this thing. Or how about a, how about a complacent doctor? Right? What I learned 30 years ago, it's all good. Or how about being married to a complacent spouse? How about being a complacent spouse? It's good enough. I'm fine. Complacency is a real problem in lots of areas of life. It's a huge problem when it seeks into our Christian life. The history at Laodicea is one where there was not complacency. The first generation of the church was marked by hard work and struggle. In fact, we read that in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul talked about the church plant in Laodicea, that first generation. And he said to the Colossians, he said, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. See, that, that first generation in Laodicea, that church plant, that first generation, it was a real struggle. It was a real spiritual battle. And the first generation, they were people who knew what it is to be desperate for Jesus. They, they knew what it was to feel like, apart from him, we can do nothing. They, they knew what it was to stay faithful in prayer because they didn't know what else to do. They knew what it was to, to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. They had a passion, a, a burning zeal for the lost to come to know Jesus. They, they grieved over the lost. They were anything but complacent. It was a struggle. It was a battle. But here we have Jesus now addressing the second generation many years later. And it's no longer a struggle. They're actually quite self-satisfied, complacent. A complacent church is in a dangerous place because it's a church that's lost sight of its mission. It's a church or a Christian that's lost sight of their purpose. It's a church or a Christian that's lost their desire for more of Christ 
more souls saved, more disciples leaving for Jesus, greater zeal in worship, more lives touched, growing, maturing, spreading a passion for others. Oh, but when complacency sets in, those things are lost. We can slip into complacency very easily. It's as easy as falling out of bed. You know how easy it is to fall out of bed? Just roll over. It's that easy. You know, a little while ago, Leanne and I had a very... Now, don't hate, don't hate me for using this illustration. I think it's a good one, but you, there's a chance you may hate me for it. So just don't. Decide now. You're not going to. But a few months ago, Leanne and I had a really neat opportunity to get a ride in a submarine, like a submarine, like to go down under the water in a submarine. They said, I don't know if it's true or not, they said it was the, it's the largest passenger submarine in the world. And there's us and about maybe 40, 50 other people got in this submarine, and they had a long bench down the inside, and they closed it all up like a real submarine, and we went down 100 feet underwater. It was a super cool experience, and we're so, great, we're so grateful. We know it was just a really neat opportunity, and it was, it was a super cool experience. But there we were, 100 feet under the water, and there's a crew of about four or five people, and one guy explaining what we're seeing, different kinds of fish and that sort of thing, somebody else driving the, the submarine around, and a couple other people keeping an eye on us, I'm sure. The next day, I got on a totally different kind of submarine. Now, we didn't go down under the water on it, but the next day, we toured a war submarine. It had been decommissioned, but back in World War II, it was very active. And it's interesting, touring around the war submarine, there's no passenger cabins. I mean, there's places for the crew to rest and recuperate, but there's no shuffleboard on the deck. There's no big social lounge. No, because you see, on a war submarine, everybody on that ship has got a purpose. Everybody on that boat has a job to do. Everybody is there to work, sleeves rolled up. Passenger submarine, we sat with our hands folded and said, ooh, ah, we were served by a small number. War submarine, everybody's got a job to do. What kind of a church do you think Jesus wants us to be? Does he want us to be a passenger submarine or a war submarine? A war submarine, correct? Because we're in a spiritual battle. The challenge that we have, though, the challenge that we have is that sometimes we can get into a place where we are more passengers than we are a crew. And I wonder, how would you assess yourself? Well, better question, how would the Lord assess you? Think about your life in this church. Now, if you're brand new here, I'm not talking to you. I'm glad you're here, and I know it takes time. I get that. I get that. So I'm not talking to you. You can just... We're all good. But you've been here a while, though. If this is your home church, you've been here a while. I want to ask you, in your life right now, are you a passenger or are you crew? What would the Lord say to you this morning? Is there a sense of complacency that's set in? You say, well, how would I know? Well, let me ask you this. In what way or in what ways are you serving right now? You may be in a season of your life where you have significant pressures and demands on you so that you're not able to serve in ways that you maybe would like to. But that's not really what I'm focusing on this morning. I'm just asking, are you serving the Lord? Are you being faithful to roll up your sleeves in your life and work for him? That could very well be in your family. But also, too, for many of us, it ought to be in some capacity in our local church, serving in the local church. Are you, are you a passenger or are you crew? I want you to be a crew. The Lord wants you to be a crew. That's where the joy is at. That's where he is right there alongside the crew working. And, and this is what he calls us to. But it's very, very easy for us to become 
Well, to become complacent. To say, you know what, it's good enough. It's good where we are. I'll tell you another way it surfaces. Is sometimes, sometimes, and it's very easy for this to happen, and I don't want to be misunderstood, but sometimes we can get into a mode or into an attitude where we just want things in the church to stay just the way they are. And sometimes we'll overhear ourselves saying things like, I hope that Hope Niagara, I hope Hope Niagara doesn't get too big. Now understand, we're not in this just so we can have a big church. But recognize this though. Every person who's added is a person. So are we about the numbers? No, but we're about the souls. And the reality is, as long as there's people around us that don't know Jesus, we got mission to fulfill. We got work to do. So our heart's desire is to be ambitious and lukewarmness sets in when we have this kind of complacency where we're sitting back not serving and where our, our heart is inclined toward, uh, let's not complicate things with more people and more problems. Let's just keep it here the way we are. That's not our heart. That's emphatically not our heart. And God help us, that's not where we're going. That is not, God forbid, that is it's not the kind of church that we would be. But it was happening at Laodicea. The Lord called them on it. They become lukewarm. It's marked by complacency. It's also, lukewarmness is also marked by self-sufficiency. It really comes through when you look at verse 17. Notice he says, he quotes them. Jesus starts quoting them. It's so interesting. He says, for you say, what do they say? He says, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Right? They got an eye problem, don't they? I, 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 I am good. Notice, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is a church that is proud, that is arrogant. There is a sense of self-sufficiency in the church. We're good on our own. We got this. As soon as we start thinking that, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble because we don't got this. In some ways, I think the Laodiceans came by this honestly. What I mean by that is that their city was kind of known as a self-made city. See, in about 60 AD, my understanding is about 60 AD, there was a, an earthquake in the city that, that brought mass destruction to Laodicea. And the people refused a, a gift from Rome. Rome offered to pay to help rebuild the city, and they refused. The Laodiceans refused that gift and rebuilt the city themselves. They were kind of known as the self-made city. They were independent. They prospered at their own hands. Now, I get there's parts of that that's certainly commendable. But to rebuild a city that's been ruined is one thing. To call people to Jesus, to see souls saved for eternity, is something totally different. And I tell you, the latter is much harder. It's impossible, in fact. The church that looks at their mission and says, we've got this is a church that's in trouble. This church here in Laodicea felt very happy with themselves, very self-satisfied, but Jesus shows them here they should be embarrassed. He says, you're wretched in your sin, you're pitiable and that you need help and don't acknowledge it, don't recognize it, don't admit it. You're poor, oh, you're rich, y'all got lots of money, your budget's outstanding. The, the Smyrnans can't even get their minds around the offerings you collect but you're spiritually poor. You're, I, I think this is a church that's so focused on the here and now and so celebratory about their offerings and their budget and their building that we've seen that they forget that true riches are that which we store up in heaven. They lost sight of that. They're very self-satisfied. 
and they were blind to it. They didn't see. And really, in a place that was known for producing wonderful clothing, it's like you're all naked in your shame. You think you're doing great, but you got a problem. And here, here's the scary part. Here's the part that really made me sit down and really think this week. It's in the middle of verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Notice the next two words. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Not realizing. You see, you could be wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked, and not even know it. That's why we preach sermons like this. So you say, okay, so lukewarmness is marked by self-sufficiency. How can I tell if I'm walking in self-sufficiency? I think there's a number of things, but I'm just going to give you one that I think is the, the central one, the main one, the most, the most telling one. The clearest indicator of self-sufficiency in the life of a church and in the life of a Christian is prayerlessness. It's prayerlessness. When we're not seeking God in prayer, we're effectively saying to God, we're good, God. We got this. We know you're great. Jesus, we've seen the portrait. Beautiful portrait. You're the one who created all things. Everything we have has come from you. That's great. We're grateful, but we're good now. You can go help other Christians. We, we don't need your help. That's what we're saying, right? We've got, got a mission. We've got souls to, to, to reach. We've got, we've got churches to plant. What's going on if we're not praying? What's going on if we're not regularly on our faces? What's going on if the church is not gathering to pray? And when we meet together praying, what's going on if you're not praying in your home, praying in your marriage, praying in your parenting? What's going on? You're kind of saying to God, I'm good. I got this. Anybody who's married here in a place right now where you're like, I don't need God's help. I'm good. If you feel that, ask your spouse if they agree. In your parenting, what an impossible job it is to raise children. Think about what the Garrett's just did here this morning, right? Coming before us, what a picture for us when we're talking with the lukewarm church. A couple, God bless them, coming before us and saying, We need Jesus. We need God. We need a church family. They are not lukewarm. And God help us, let us ourselves never be lukewarm either. One of the great heritages that I have inherited in this church coming in is a reputation and pattern for prayer. Loved ones, we can't stop. We cannot stop. We have to keep pressing forward in prayer. Jesus said, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Conversely, how about Matthew 19, 26? With man, Jesus in the context of talking about salvation of souls. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I can't think of two better verses to inspire us to be on our faces before the Lord than these. Apart from me, you can do nothing. With God, all things are possible. We're a lukewarm church. If we're self-sufficient, we'll be prayerless. But if we're hot or cold in a good way, we'll be prayerful. In our marriage, in our parenting, in battling temptation, in decision-making, in discernment. In fact, I just got a little assignment for you. It's not the first time I've given it to you, but I think repetition is a good teacher. If you were married to somebody 
and they are also a believer, I strongly exhort you to make it your habit to pray together every day. In fact, husbands, I particularly just want to take my little pastor elbow and just, just nudge it into your side a little bit there. Just, oh, you're talking to me? I'm talking to you. So tonight before you go to sleep, take your hand, reach out and grab hold of your wife's hand and pray. You say, oh yeah, pastor, how am I going to do that? What's that going to look like? Very simple. You could pray a simple prayer like, Lord, help us in our marriage to be more prayerful. Maybe you've got a child, young or not so young. God, give us wisdom in how we minister to our son, to our daughter. Maybe you pray prayers of confession. God, forgive me for my impatience this afternoon, for my sharp word to my wife. Help me, God, to be more gracious tomorrow than I was today. You could invite your wife to pray, too. You say, wives, why are you not, why are you not telling me to do that? Well, you can do that. But I want to encourage your husbands to lead spiritually. Now, husbands, some of you might, some of you might be like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do that. And just where we're at in our marriage right now, pastor, because you have no idea what's really going on in life. You have no idea because I'll do that. And my wife will just say to me, oh, yeah, you're just doing that because the pastor said to do it. At which point you will say, yeah, and the pastor's right. He's right. But there's a really good chance she ain't going to say that to you. In fact, there's a great chance she'll be blessed by it. You want to not be lukewarm? Don't be lukewarm. Take a bold step of faith today. Simple, simple. You can do that. You can do that. To seek the Lord together in your marriage. Seek the Lord together in your parenting. You say, great, what do I do when I'm single? Same thing. Same thing, just yourself. Maybe with a friend. A friend. Text a friend. Say, hey, listen, let's pray. Two-minute prayers. Let's go. God, we need you. God, I need your grace today. Now pray together, seeking God together in your small groups, certainly. Lukewarmness is marked by complacency and self-sufficiency. I want to ask you, dear friend, dear friend, are you lukewarm? Is there lukewarmness in your life? If you say to me this morning, Ross, I think there might be, what do I do? Jesus tells us what to do, verses 18 and 19. He says, I counsel you. Isn't this great? Jesus is giving you advice. Right? Jesus says, you want some advice? Yes, please. Yes, please. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. What does that mean? Well, how do you buy something from Jesus? Well, you don't pay him money. You do it by faith. You trust him. Gold, what's he talking about here? I think he's talking about true spiritual riches, treasure in heaven. How you store up treasure in heaven is by living for the Lord, trusting in the Lord. You seek his power and his strength to be obedient to him. And as you're obedient to him in your life, you thereby store up treasure in heaven. So wonderful prayer, wonderful, wonderful opportunities. Lord, I need you. I want to store up treasure in heaven. So, so give me grace, Lord God, to trust you and to walk with you today, to lay up eternal riches. Trust him for that. Seek him for that. He says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so you may clothe yourselves. White garments. There's a nakedness of shame. There seems to be sinful compromise in the church. But Jesus wonderfully, because of his death and resurrection, makes us clean. And then calls us to walk in, a, in holiness before him. And he grants us the repentance to keep short accounts with him. 
And as we walk in holiness before him, we adorn the gospel wearing these white garments that he refers to. And then he talks about salve for their eyes. Remember in Laodicea, they produced this salve. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may actually see. Yes, Lord God, attend to this. Attend to this, loved one. Ask the Lord to give you eyes to see. Humble yourself before him. Let me ask you, what are you going to do right now? I would implore you to seek him. As Jesus says here, I think you can just write this down as as my summary note on this. A lukewarm church is called to be zealous and repent. A lukewarm church is called to be zealous. Like, Like wake up from your slumber. See that you're lukewarm and repent of it. Take a step today of faith and obedience. You say, what does that look like? It looks like a, lot, like a lot of things. But if you don't feel like it, tell the Lord that. Start there. Say, Lord, I, I think there's lukewarmness, and, and there's so few fibers in me that are motivated to move here. I just, just feel stuck in my own self and my own dull heart. Tell him that. Take, take a step today. Take a step forward. Maybe there's sin he's reminded you of. Is bringing to the fore. Confess that to him. Pray and plead with him, God, God, please don't let me be lukewarm. Let me be a person who is alive in you, hot, cold, whatever, but not lukewarm. Pray for that. Finally, finally, there's good reasons, good reasons to be done with lukewarmness, good reasons. Notice verse 20, what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Isn't that awesome? Somebody's at the door. Who, who is it? Who's there? Somebody's at the door in your life. Who's there? Who is it? Who is at the door? Who is it? You're all looking at me like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> Who's at the door? Who's at the door? Jesus. All right, Jesus, that's right. Who's at the door? Jesus, that's right. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, do you hear him? Do you hear him calling you? Like, don't be lukewarm. Don't waste your life. Don't piddle away this precious life I've given you. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What a picture. Who wants to have lunch with Jesus today? Wouldn't that be amazing? Who wants to live life with Jesus? Well, you do, don't you? We often hear this verse in the evangelistic sense, and there's truth in it, great truth in it, that Jesus, he would call to you today. And say, trust in me, give your life to me, I'll wash away your sins and enter into a forever friendship with you that will result one day in you being with me forever. It's, it's true, there's truth in that. I think though in this verse, that's not exactly what he's saying. What he's saying here is he's talking to the believers in Laodicea and say, listen, in your lukewarmness, you've kept me at arm's length. But understand, if you'll respond today, and renounce your lukewarmness, you and I will have a relationship that you are starving for, that your soul is parched for. You want to know me? You want to know me? You can. So hear and respond. There's good reasons to be done with lukewarmness. And then finally, we have, we have fellowship with Christ now. We have victory with Christ forever. Verse 21, the one who conquers, we conquer in Christ by faith. I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Loved ones, the day may be difficult. The days may be dark, but victory is guaranteed. Victory is certain. What an incentive to live, to live for him. I want to close the sermon today in prayer because I think it is a concrete response 
to what we have seen here. And if what I'm praying is what you are thinking and agreeing with, and you just pray right along with me.